Hi, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show, where we discuss tips, strategies, struggles, triumphs, and success stories related to borderline personality disorder. Here is your host, Faye Green. Hi, everyone. If this is your first time here, welcome to the BPD Bravery Show. If it's not your first time here, then uh, welcome back. Today's guest is Sharon Simon, who has audiences howling with laughter with her sometimes edgy, always hysterical comedy. She has been seen on SNL, Comedy Central, and is a featured host of the New York City Pride Parade. Although she calls New York City home, Sharon is a touring headliner. Comedian Sharon Simon is not only funny, she's remarkable, and having learned not only that you can have a life worth living with borderline personality disorder, but that the pain of recovery can be hilarious. Instead of hiding from the stigma, Sharon lets audiences know who she is and has them laughing the entire time. I truly enjoy talking to Sharon. I'm sure that you will enjoy our conversation too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. As a rule, I like to be open about everything because I think it's super, super important that somebody is. Someone has a voice, right? There is a voice out there. Yeah, I run a a support group for people with borderline and part of people's like anxiety that their boss will find out that they're they're romantic partners, that they're friends. So it's important that somebody's out there saying, hey, I have borderline. I'm not a stalker. I'm not threatening to kill anybody. And all the all those ugly stereotypes that we battle that that right. are able to do that. So please feel free to ask me anything. I'm, and I appreciate that. And I'm comfortable saying. Wow. So you have a support group that you that you facilitate. Mm-hmm. That is so cool in New York City. So it it was in New York. But then during the shutdown, I went virtual and I just kept it virtual. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is it's, that is really cool. It's through Meetup. It's called Life on the Borderline. A mother of somebody living with borderline started the group. And so I, I inherited it and I'm always looking, I'm always looking for helpers. If, so I'll put that out there too. Like if anyone <laughs> wants to facilitate a group because people want more groups than I'm able to do. Wow. That is so cool. Thank you. And it's important because I know um, recently there was the call it the BPD fest um, from emotions matters mm-hmm. and they sent out a survey seeing like, how do you feel about it? What do you like? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just seeing that there are so many others yeah. that struggle just like myself and I'm not alone. Yeah. To know that you are not alone because when I got my diagnosis, it was a relief. It was the first time I felt like, oh, I'm not the only one that yeah, <laughs> struggles a- with this on a daily basis. So support groups are so, so important. Um, so now you're a comedian. What mm-hmm. got you into comedy? So I've been in entertainment since I was a kid. I was on Saturday Night Live when I was very, very young. I was auditioning then. I, It was the one thing that I loved doing and was actually good at. Um, I would go into my parents' laundry bags and I would put on their dirty clothes and pretend to be all different kinds of characters. Started improv very, very young. Uh, But what got me into stand-up specifically was I had given up on being an entertainer completely. I moved to Los Angeles thinking that I was going to be a serious actress and no one ever hired me to do anything serious. I completely gave up and moved home to uh, Hudson County and started taking classes in business thinking I was going to 
finally get my life together and be organized and get my finances in order. And it's just, it wasn't me, but I was trying really, really hard. And then 9-11 happened. And I thought about all of the people who died sitting at their desks, doing things they didn't want to be doing with their lives, hoping that someday it would make them financially comfortable. And I was like, that life isn't for me. So I tried stand up once. I was terrible at it. My mother encouraged me to try again. And the second time was very, very different. Oh, wow. I'm having this dilemma. I was discussing with a friend, what should I do? And I came up with all those ideas that make really nice money, like IT. And it's things that I would hate. I would I, yeah. just thinking about it. I just I, I my stomach starts to turn. I feel like I don't want to do it. But then you think, oh, the money is there. And my friend was telling me she's retired now. She told me she was an IT programmer. Mm -hmm. She said, I hated and she's an artist now. She's got a mm -hmm. gallery in Italy. She said, I hated my work. Don't do that. If you're going to not like what you're doing, it's not worth it. <laughs> no matter yeah, what the money is, don't do it. <laughs> I, I agree 100%. It, it's sort of like a, I don't have kids. So for me to say that, I know that people make these choices for their family and for their children. Uh, I don't have to make extra money for my parrot, really. Uh, so <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not the same thing. But life is not meant to be lived for the weekends and for the two weeks of vacation. Life is in every moment. And if you hate what you're doing in every moment, I think it's, it's a sad way to live. Yeah, it's just difficult, especially in the society, to yeah. remember it. Because the hustle culture is pushed on us. And uh, there was another friend I spoke to today, and he keeps on telling me that I got to work harder. <laughs> I think to myself, am I not working hard enough? I'm sure you are. I'm I'm curious, what kind of business do you have? E-commerce. So I manufacture things, import and sell online. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I enjoy it. I really do. But for the rest of the year, I I gotta I gotta find something that's fulfilling. Yeah. Um, and doing nothing is definitely not good. I can tell you that. I think that for people with borderline, doing nothing can be very bad. Our minds start to race and oh I mean it's taken me down such a dark hole I've been begging my neighbor and he's an HVAC uh, in HVAC he mm. cleans a uh, roof what did they call it all those big air conditioned things and I'm like mm. can I help you just so I have what to do with myself yeah. um and he's like no you you know you gotta it's it's more difficult than you think it is but yeah yeah so you got into the entertainment business and um I've tried to get out of it many times. I've tried for there to be a different kind of life for me. Really? And it just isn't. Yeah. I it wasn't the, you know, after I was after I was hospitalized and I was going through the tail end of DVT is when I met my husband and the man who would become my husband and started to feel like, okay, now what? And I trained to be a peer specialist that's with running the group, but I also had I landed a full-time job working at a housing organization as well as working for the NYPD. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this now. But there are certain, I feel like there are certain things about us that we just simply can't change. And I always belonged in the entertainment industry and that's where I always go back to. So now this time, uh, which has been for about the past 
eight years, I think, when I'm not feeling it, I do it anyway. And I push through and, and I come out the other end stronger. So what would you say about managing pain through laughter? So this is for me, and I can't stress that enough because I could possibly offend people and it, it, in no way, shape or form mean it to offend anybody. But when bad things happen, sometimes I find humor through it. So I'll tell you something about myself that is very personal and is part of what happened. I spent four years of my childhood in a full-on forced adult relationship with a boy that was older than me, who forced me to do a lot of things and really, really tortured me. He did this because homophobia at the time was pretty severe and he was doing it from his perspective. And I, I, I don't agree with this because I know a lot of gay people and a lot of gay people would mean a lot of people who've had histories like I've had, and I've never met anybody who went through what I had, but he blames it all on that. And the fact that he did that, the fact that I was molested, but I was being dressed more than I was being touched, all of that, I find humor in. I'm working on a one person show about what happened. I'm working on battling the stigma of homosexuality as well as mental illness and how important, like if there is a culprit in this story, it's, it's stigma and prejudice more than anything else. So that to me is funny. It makes me laugh. And by laughing at it, it hurts less because I can't change that it happened, but I can decide to find it funny instead of depressing. Do you think that there has to be a time lapse between the painful event and being able to laugh about it or say if something bad happens to me now, not, I don't want to curse myself, but if something mm -hmm. bad happens to me now, would I be able to laugh about it now or would I have to like kind of remove myself and have time pass? I would say that that depends on the event and on you. What I'm telling you now, what I just told you when it was happening, I was I was locked in a part of my head where I was being tormented. I did not find any humor in what was happening. However, recently, um, say recently, a few years ago, my father passed on and um, he was he was in his 80s. He was in the hospital. He had a lot of serious health conditions. I had not seen his living will. Mm we knew he was going to die soon. So I needed it because decisions had to be made like living will, um, in case, in case anyone watching doesn't know, it doesn't have to do with belongings. It has to do with how aggressive somebody wants the treatments to be once they're past a certain point and you know that they're not going to survive. So that's, I was looking at the living will and in the living will, it said that he didn't want to donate his organs. And when I saw that, knowing that my father was on dialysis, had stints in his heart, had so many different health conditions. The fact that the thought that anybody would want his organs at that point just made me laugh out loud while it was happening because it was, it was, it was silliness, very silly, but it, it, and it was a release going through so much pain at that time, having to read his living will and make those decisions were, were horrible. And then having that moment of, just pure laughter at that. And I'm saying this to anybody watching, I 
I know it's horrible and I don't mean it in any way, shape or form to be offensive. I love my father. I was his caretaker and it was heartbreaking. But my laughing at that didn't hurt anybody. Right. And it probably helped you too. Yeah. And I worked it into my act. You did? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. So, it's, so I have a few minutes in my act where I talk about my father passing and it works very well. But when I try to talk about what happened to me as a child, people get so uptight that they don't find it funny. So I can't do it in straight stand-up. It's got to go into a one-person show where people walk in and know what they're in for a little better. I'm confused. What's the difference between stand-up and a one-person show? So, so stand-up is is very specific. You go to a comedy club to laugh. Right. If you go to a comedy club in New York City or Los Angeles, a few other places, you may see a showcase show with lots of different comedians doing anywhere between seven to 20 minutes. And you're right, going to see, right. so if you don't like this one, you'll like the next one. And even though some of the jokes are very heartfelt, the jokes are... Um, jokey if that makes sense <laughs> yes you know, even if it's a story even if it's heartfelt whereas a one person show is someone's story and oh. not every aspect of it may be funny um so doing a special like i don't know if you saw monique special monique special had a lot of heart in it it could you could have called that a one person show or you could have called it stand-up. There are specials that are like that. John Mulaney's new specials like, like that. But when it's just you doing a show about personal things, and of course, if a stand-up comic does this, they're they're trying to make it funny. Of course, that's why people are there, huh? <laughs> to get the laugh. Because we yeah. all need laugh, because laughter is, is medicine, what I think. Um, Absolutely. I could sometimes be in a real bad place and then I'll just listen to comedians. It helps. It really does help. It changes my mood. So there's another thing that I think is really important for anybody living with borderline symptoms to know. It's that when we watch old sitcoms that we grew up with, whatever old sitcoms you've seen a lot of times, it releases oxytocin in the brain. So if if you've had a hard day and you just want to zone out to something that's like really familiar, it's not a waste of time. It's medicine. Thank you. I want to discuss the stigma um, with BPD and the mental health community. How do you see it displayed? So I think it's gotten a tiny bit better over the past few years. But when I was first diagnosed, I was very relieved to finally, like you had said, like really relieved, like, oh, this is what's wrong. I'm not alone. There is a way to get better. My, my sister is a psychotherapist and has psychotherapist friends. And one of her psychotherapist friends who I had considered a friend at the time was like, you don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be a borderline. They're dangerous people and never get better. When I worked in mental health housing, if a client had borderline symptoms, the social workers openly bashed them in the office, knowing full well that I lived with borderline and ran a support group, that the stigma is so bad that they felt as though I should be okay with them bashing me and people like me in my presence. So for that reason, I think speaking out, it's some of the, and if you, if you look online, we go, so I married a, I married an occupational therapist and he doesn't work in mental health. He works with kids, 
but when he was when he and I were were getting to know each other, he was still in school, and I was so scared to tell him because a little bit of knowledge is so much worse than none. Google it. Google borderline personality disorder, and it's it's <laughs> horrible what they say about us, yeah. and it's wrong. I've been running this support group for a very very long time, so I'm not just speaking from my my experience of what I what I experienced, but what I experienced in the group members that. The commonalities are highly sensitive, strong emotions, difficult managing strong emotions. Those are the only things that across the board, then some people struggle with some boundaries, some people struggle with identity and, and keeping jobs, but that stuff's not even everybody. My biggest, my biggest struggles is the, the emotions part. And um, for me, I used to, in the beginning, I thought, I wish I didn't have any emotions. I wish I didn't feel anything. Wouldn't life be a lot easier? <laughs> and I know that's yeah, wrong because emotions, you could use emotions for just the opposite. You could use right. emotions to pour your emotions into art, right? Yeah. Or into, I don't know what else. You you tell me, what else could you use your emotions so, for in a good way? The, the, I saw the Grand Canyon I've only been there once. So when I saw it, I was just overwhelmed with a feeling of awe and shock. And um, I still remember how intensely I felt that feeling. I had traveled there with a group of my college friends and everybody was having a good time. And they were like, oh, wow, it's so cool. And I was just filled with so much intense energy of, of, of something uh, magical. The way I feel when I hear music that I absolutely love. The way I feel when I have a good set. I've been told that I was the happiest bride anybody had ever seen. So there's a lot of good to it. And at this point, I really don't regret having very strong emotions. I'm still struggling a little bit with them coming on quickly and lasting long. Those two. But I don't mind when they come on. I don't mind having them. I just having a little bit of time before they, you know, if you get shoved on the subway and you feel victimized that, that, that feeling while I'm on the subway, not having a moment to process it. And then two hours after I'm home and the incident's over, it's still feeling it in my body. I wish, I wish for that in the future to be less. So sometimes with emotions, you could, I mean, I personally have, when I've had a lot of emotions and I've, I've written some really great pieces when I've got mm -hmm. emotions. I, emotions can sometimes make me take action in a good way. Oh, yeah. But other times when I'm overcome with certain emotions, which are not good, which is more like despair, frustration. How do you take that and channel it into something good? So, you know, I'm a comic and I so I try to look for the humor in certain things. But if I can't, I also have tools. One of the biggest tools is just sitting there and feeling the emotion and doing nothing. Letting it process through your body. Not a pleasant experience, but it works. The easiest way I can describe doing this is if, um, have you ever had brain freeze? Like drank something really cold and had it like hurt your sinuses? Ouch, yeah, the slushy yeah. 7-Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> and it hurts like a lot, right? It hurts a lot. And then it's gone. Right. But there's nothing you can do about it when it comes on. So it's an odd thing about emotions. We feel like if we do something, it's going to go away. But it it doesn't. It's sort of like it needs to be heard. 
but it doesn't need to be dwelled on. So just feel it physically and then let it go. Um, I also have a weighted blanket and I think that getting under that is just super. Do you have one? Yeah. And it's my, it's my savior. Honestly, at times I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, me either. (laughs) I know some people don't like it. Some people find it. There are weighted blankets now that are cooling blankets too. So some people find it too warm. Um, Others just don't like the weight. Um, But for me, it's like a hug. Yeah. It's like a hug in a blanket. So it's weird. A friend of mine, I, I I would never have thought to go out and buy it, but a friend mm-hmm. of mine, when I moved to North Carolina, bought me this as a well as a homecoming gift. Mm-hmm. Hope is that what you say? No, oh gosh, hold on. It's not a homecoming gift. Uh, a welcoming gift? What do you call apartment warming? Housewarming. Yeah, that's the word. A housewarming gift. And I I love it. I really do. Yeah. I learned about it through my husband when we were courting. He had, he had, I, I had said I had need like three blankets on me because I want to feel the pressure. And he's like, oh, you'd like a weighted blanket. This is a very long time ago. I, I was like, you mean like at the dentist? And he's like, kind of. <laughs> Where do I get one? I need one right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that does help me a lot. Um, I know some people have, um, they call them, self-care boxes where they put in stuff that when you don't feel well you could take out like a scented candle or letters i have have some things like that i have a god i can't remember it's called the chill pill and it gives you a very mild electric shock and it helps reduce anxiety like very very tiny 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 it doesn't hurt um but it it's it's similar to a tens machine, which people use sometimes for muscle strain, and that helps. I keep some peppermint oil with me, which I put here. Mm-hmm. I also keep uh, two medications with me. I, I didn't use. So I was off of all meds for for a decade, but um, being my father's caretaker left me with a pretty bad anxiety. Pretty bad anxiety. So I have propanol, and I've Zan- heard of it as needed, but I rare, the, the propanol I take more often than the Xanax. I really rarely take the Xanax, but it's there. I know it's there. Mm, I've heard of pro the pro thingy, but yeah. I've not, I've never tried it. I, um, recently, cause I, you know, when sometimes when you come off medications, antidepressants, mm-hmm. SNRIs, you could have really bad withdrawals. Yeah. I had that withdrawing from effects <gasps> Oh God, I tried it. It, it. it was, it was, it was so bad for me, but then I, I, that, so then I went on to Cymbalta. Withdrawing from Cymbalta was tough. And that's when the panic attack started. Yeah. Yeah. They're awful. They are awful, awful. So I do have some clonopin to take mm-hmm. if they happen. It doesn't always help, <laughs> help me though. <laughs> Uh, and it also could be that I'm in a place in my life where things are very up in the air. And I recently spoke to a friend and she tells me, oh, think of it as like an experiment. You have no idea where you're going to live or what you're going to do. Just see it as a, you know, just play around with it. And it's difficult for me to get into that mindset of like, okay, you know, like this is something new. Explore it. Um, I can I can understand that for sure. But possibly once you figure out what it is that you want, you'll be excited and happy about it. I hope. I hope. I do too. 
I want to go back to this to the stigma, the mental health yeah. stigma and BPD. What do you think can be done? What I think is happening now a lot is that people with a mental illness are starting to speak up. Yes. Like organizations that are based are organized by people with um, BPD, right? And so they're speaking up and they're telling their stories and people are realizing, oh, it's not what the media portrays. It's not what Google says and all of that. I think, I think with, what, with what you're doing, by having a podcast and, and talking about it and being public and having those resources and, and being on the internet and having something else that will show up when people start looking it up. So... But how do you explain to people that it's really, like you said, it's people being, having more like heightened emotions. It's not people like, I don't know, on the internet, you'll see people, I don't know what they, criminals or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's not that, that it's people that are actually hurting emotionally. How do you explain that? How do you properly explain that to the public? So in my, in my case, I'm prepared at all times to talk about it with anybody who may be holding on to that severe stigma and be present with them and not feel judged and speak out. When I was working in mental health housing and they would openly talk negatively about people that they felt had borderline symptoms, I would gently remind people that a lot of people with borderline hold jobs as I'm sitting there. Mm. and do the best I can not to react emotionally, even if I'm feeling it. You can't help but feel things, but we can help what other people see at times. So even if it makes me sad or even if it makes me feel misjudged, if I'm calm and I can speak out with a smile and say, I understand that that's your experience, but please remember have you have you ever had this kind of direct experience with someone who lived with borderline personality disorder and continue to do that? I think what you are doing is amazing. And it's just more of that. The stigma within the mental health community itself, part of the issue is that the people who get involved in work in mental health come from a place of being interested in mental health because they either have mental health conditions or they love someone with a mental health condition. Oftentimes the difference between somebody who's a peer specialist and somebody who's a social worker is their self-identification and ability to look at themselves and be like, hey, I want to help people who struggle because I have X, Y, Z and I'm willing to look at it as opposed to somebody, and not all social workers, I, the person who saved my life was a social worker. So it's not, and there are many, many wonderful ones. I worked with wonderful ones and I worked with ones that definitely did not have the level of mental health that I did, but didn't identify it themselves. You they- are very, very strong because I'll tell you what what happened to me. About a year ago, I gave a presentation to a group of people, and most of them were not mental health professionals, but there were three mental health professionals in the audience. It was over Zoom, mm-hmm. and two of them ganged up against me, saying that people with BPD should not be treated. Um, there's a reason why you know social workers don't want to treat people with BPD, and they were so mean, and they kept on going on and on, and I tried to keep quiet, 
And at one point I couldn't, I just started crying and literally I was at my desk. It was over zoom and I, I left, I, I started crying and then I just left. I couldn't continue the conversation because I was being berated by two quote unquote, you know, those that are supposed to help people with mental right. illnesses and just telling, telling me how, why they don't want to treat people with BPD and how awful it is to treat people with BPD. So I wasn't that strong. I, you know, you were able to calmly say what you want. I couldn't. And I knew, I knew if I opened my mouth, I'm going to say mean things. And I didn't want, that was the last thing I wanted to do. So I just, I started crying. <laughs> the listeners saw, like I started crying and I just, I left and that was it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't continue. I'm so sorry that you went through that. I'm so sorry. No. It's it's so it's it's like you said. Now I could laugh about it, but I wasn't that strong. I couldn't I couldn't take it. I could it, not stand up to them. I couldn't I didn't even know how to deal with it. So the next time what what I would suggest if you want to keep presenting is to write down what they said now that it's passed and think of what you would say now mm. if you could. That way, the next time you give a presentation, you're prepared for that. Thank you. That's a very good tip. I have a friend who had this ugly, ugly breakup. And uh, he was like, yeah, she's a mess. I think she's a borderline. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Just that's all I have to say. I'm public that I have borderline personality disorder. It's all over my social media. He knows when he's saying that to me, that so do I. So I don't have to defend. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is be me and be present. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So Very I, much so. I think by doing, but, but write down your answers now and then you'll, you'll know for next time. It's, it's, it's happened a couple of times where people have said, things like that to me. And, and remember, I come from a place of humor first. So when somebody is in mental health and they're that ignorant, I'm going to start laughing. Like, oh, you're, you're in mental health. You're helping people. Oh, you're, you're really good at that. You're making me want to cry. You're making me feel terrible about myself. Go you in your mental health. Gosh, I wish I was at that level of strength. For me, it's like, <laughs> just to start crying other people can do that I don't I don't want you to think that things don't break me down they do they do and like things said by my family will stay with me and it's it's hard I'm but if you want to get to that place if you want to keep speaking and mm -hmm. you want to get to that place just practice it and you'll get mm -hmm. stronger remember it's them it's not you well, what happened after I did give a presentation, but not about this, something similar mm -hmm. later. Uh, I didn't want to do it, but this friend of mine begged me to present. So I did it reluctantly about half a year later. One of the three was on on the call, like on the mm -hmm. Zoom call. And I guess she realized how much she screwed up because she couldn't, she, she kept on doing just the opposite and trying to make me feel so good. Mm -hmm. It was like, she's trying to correct what she's done in the past. And I'm like, oh, you know, the boat has sailed or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I, it just scared me. It, it was, I would never want to have to walk out of a place just because I'm crying because I, I'm so hurt. And the only things that, 
would come out of my mouth at that time would be things that I would regret. Right. right. That, that, so that's my theory. I, If I'm in a place that it gets so bad that I want to say something not nice, I'll shut down. I'll be quiet. I'll, I'll just bite my lips rather than say something that I'll regret later. I've, I've been that way most of my life. I'm currently working hard with my therapist on learning self-advocacy and standing up for myself in the moment. In but, a what way would it, but what would it help if I would say something mean to them? It wouldn't. That's, that, <laughs> that's the hard thing about the stigma with borderline is if somebody attacks you in any way and you come back with any kind of emotion they blame it on the illness or the condition yeah. and not on how they just treated you. Yep. Yep. Part oh. of it, I think, is like a constant conversation with yourself. For me, for me, like mm-hmm. communicating with myself about it. Is this worth it? What do I want to do here? And then another factor is that I've been performing since I'm a little girl. When I'm on stage and I'm speaking, I'm in it like a different part of my brain. So it's different than maybe, you know, sitting at a table with my family members and them criticizing me is going to hurt and could break me down. But sitting in front of a panel of professionals where I'm trying to educate on borderline, anything they say to me isn't about me. I see. It's about your perception of borderline. Right. And my job is to try to battle it. That makes sense. I have another question now jumping back to the having strong emotions and using it for the good. What happens when you have strong emotions and they're not good They're and you, you can't figure out how to use them for the good. And you're afraid to talk to people because you're afraid that you're going to hurt their feelings because of your strong emotions. Does that make any sense? Say yeah. I'm in a, I'm in a really bad, dark place. And when I try to talk to my friends, I get very easily annoyed and I don't want to do that. So now what I'm, what I'm doing is isolating because I don't want to say anything mean. Right. Which I'm not sure is a good coping strategy. It depends on, and I'm sorry that you're in such a, a hard place right now that you're feeling that. No, it's okay. It's life. <laughs> it's going to pass. So I used to tell my friends when I was in a really bad place very, very regularly. And it created this pattern with certain friends where they saw me as weak. And so I don't do that now. I really, I'll, I'll verbally tell my husband, um, Mother's Day is very hard for me. The days leading up to Mother's Day, the days after Mother's Day, very, very hard on me. So I haven't been myself. I'm not feeling 100%. I don't share with him all the thoughts in my head. He doesn't ask for that. I'm more sharing that I'm in this place and it's hard to be in this place and being around me might be hard. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one thing you, you can do is know if you know what you need, you can ask for it. But if you go to your friends with just pain, they can't necessarily do anything to help you. So first try to pause and know what you need. 
Um, that might not be possible right now. It's easier to know what you need when you're not feeling well, when you are feeling well. It depends, it depends on the person. I think part of the issue that I have had with my family for decades that I really, really regret now, but I, I do my best not to hurt myself with that regret, was that I lumped all my family together and didn't see them as individuals interacting mm. with me very, very different from each other. So I have some family members, I feel like I'm not doing well, I need support. I have family members that if I'm not feeling well and I see them call, I have to wait until not only am I feeling well, but I have no work that day. So in case the conversation makes me feel bad, I'm okay. Um, but there's there's okay. been a lot of loss in my family Mm -hmm. And it's changed the dynamics of it. But everybody in my family knows I was hospitalized. Everybody in the family knows that I spent my childhood as uh, as as confined by this older kid that I could, had no voice and wasn't allowed to grow into a, a young adult in, in the ways that most people are in this country. They all saw it. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I thank you. I often think, I, you know, I hate that it happened. Not saying that I'm glad that it happened, but I have a really cool life now. And had that not happened, I think, you know, I'm at the stage in life where things would be slowing down and I'd, it, I'd be all about my kids. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not, there is some regret that I'm never going to have kids, but I've, I've, I'm living an interesting life and I might not have otherwise. Doesn't mean I forgive him. I don't, I've learned recently this, they, everyone's like, you forgive for yourself. You don't forgive for the other person. You have to forgive to move on. And like, no, no you, you don't have to, it's okay. No, it's say, no. Yeah. You could move on without forgiving. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, one more question before we wrap this up is what would you tell for anyone? Do you have any advice for anyone watching or listening to this? It's such a hard thing. And it was such a hard thing to learn, but nobody can help you. It, something inside you has to shift to do the work, to make those new pathways. I, if, if something bad happened and I, I don't want to get into it because it's not really a big thing, but something kind of bad happened to me last night and it set off a fear and anger and sadness response in me that kept me up all night. I wanted to come home and I wanted my husband to make it go away, but he can't. The colleague that caused it, I wanted to tell him off, but that would have done nothing too. All I had to do was feel it and be present with myself and know that I didn't want that experience last night to be what dictated my day today. But only I could make that decision. That being said, I would not have been able to make that decision prior to going through two years of very focused DBT. DBT is not for everybody. It's what worked for me. EMDR made me worse. Psychotherapy did not help. If you're with a therapist and it's not working, if you're not getting better, 
keep looking for what does work. Don't put any self-blame on yourself, but look for the strength inside yourself to be what you want to be. And know that a life with strong emotions is a good life. It's a different life. But just like I couldn't have chosen to be taller, I would have liked to have chosen to have been different in, in other ways, you know, like stronger, have an easier time staying fit, things like that. I, I can't be anything other than what I am. But learning how to live with it to the best of my ability through myself has been what's made it better for me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's show. I wanted to give a shout out to the podcast called The Hero Within by Karen Hall, the podcast about connecting and sharing inspirational true stories of overcoming adversity while finding hope and healing. I'll leave a link in the description below. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD. Thank you so much for joining us on today's BPD Bravery Show. If you've enjoyed it, then like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure to tune into our show every Monday and Friday. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD.